I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program. Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at UCLA School of Law, joins us to discuss his new book, co-authored with William E. Forbath, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. In this conversation, we'll mainly be discussing the history of liberal and left-wing constitutional arguments, as well as the Civil War, the Reconstruction Era, abolitionism and radical republicanism, FDR's New Deal, LBJ's Great Society, the Supreme Court, oligarchic economic interests versus we the people, FDR and the Democracy of Opportunity Tradition, Landed Aristocracies, Left Wing versus Right Wing Conceptualizations of Freedom, and much, much more. So, with all that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Joseph Fishkin on the Anti-Oligarchy Constitution. Welcome to Parallax Views, Joseph Fishkin, a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, a school that I'm very familiar with. I've talked to a few professors there. They've always been very helpful to me. And also uh, the author of the new book with William E. Forbath entitled The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. How are you doing? Well, yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. So I guess the place we should start is uh, we hear the term oligarchy a lot, uh, especially when it comes to, say, you know, like Russia. We hear about Russian oligarchs, uh, but we don't often hear about oligarchy uh, when it comes to America. And I think a lot of people 
may hear the term, but they may not even know what it means. So maybe we could delve into defining oligarchy and what it means in an American context. Sure. So one of the things that um, that I learned in doing the research for this book is that while you're totally right that today we don't use that word a lot to describe U.S. context and use it a lot for various places like Russia, that's kind of a new thing. And that um, Americans in the 19th century and early 20th century did use oligarchy quite a bit. Uh, And what they meant was concentrated economic and political power. So it's one thing if you just have somebody who's rich and, um, you know, spends a lot of money on their own yacht or something, that's not necessarily an oligarch. Oligarchy is when that concentrated economic power, maybe including monopoly, maybe including, you know, the power to uh, control a lot of um, people's work, something like that. When when concentrated economic power shades over into political power, and so in the U.S. context, because we have such a kind of wild west deregulated system of how we fund political campaigns and that sort of thing, there really are opportunities for the very economically powerful to also have outsized measure of political power. And, you know, in the 19th century and into the early 20th, there was a lot of concern about this because it was the first, uh, sort of the late 19th, early 20th was the rise of big, powerful national corporations and your first kind of robber baron economy where uh, the first Gilded Age, you started to have economic actors who were so powerful that, especially in the West, they were able to buy off whole state legislatures and buy themselves Senate seats and that sort of stuff. That's what oligarchy American style has looked like historically. And today, I think the argument looks a little different. We don't have the outright bribery, uh, you know, buying whole uh, legislatures in states like, you know, Montana, other states in the West that we did 100 years ago. But we do have a uh, small number of people and corporations that are able through legal as well as illegal means to have a lot of power and control of our representative government way outside what kind of one person, one vote type of logic would give them. And so that's how I think about oligarchy. So one thing that I find very interesting uh, about your book is you're sort of looking at the anti-oligarchy element within in, in the constitution and within the founding of America. And it's it's interesting to me because I think the way the Constitution gets talked about today, I think in a lot of ways, uh, the white r- the right wing in America has sort of seized on the Constitution. It's almost like they've uh, made this vision where, no, that's our document. Uh, we're the ones concerned with individual rights, and that's what the founders were concerned with, was individual rights. Uh, and I, I think a lot of times uh, liberals and, and left liberals uh, maybe don't talk about the Constitution as much. Uh, so how do you think that came to be? And maybe what are we getting wrong about the Constitution? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question. And the premise is certainly right. You know, we we have had a long run, I would say 75 years or so, 
you know, pretty much everybody now alive has only lived through a time where conservatives were talking more than liberals about the Constitution. Uh, so how do we get there? Well, in, I guess the first thing I should say is it wasn't always like that. Uh, the 19th century didn't look at all like that. Everybody on all sides of political fights, the major political fights of that era and into the early 20th, was making constitutional arguments all the time. And they were making those constitutional arguments through politics, not just in legal arguments in court. Now, conservatives, as you were just suggesting, conservatives still do that today. They're making constitutional arguments in politics, not just in court. But uh, in the mid 20th century, two things happened, I think, that led liberals to, and I use the word liberals because it's the right word for this group, not progressives, the liberals of the mid 20th century uh, who cared about things like civil rights and civil liberties and you know the right to dissent and free speech and all that stuff, but uh, were the kind of liberals you know of their day, they um, learned to love the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had been terrible for progressives and liberals for its entire previous history, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century when it had struck down lots of progressive legislation like the income tax, uh, labor law, wage and hour laws, worker safety, you know, everything. The Supreme Court was like a buzzsaw striking it down. But FDR appointed, intimidated the court into backing off and then successfully appointed a lot of justices to the court so that in the mid 20th century, you had the Warren Court, which started to do things that liberals liked. And liberals started to say, well, you know, actually the Constitution, maybe it should be interpreted by the experts on the Supreme Court and not by politicians out in politics. And in particular, there were a lot of politicians in that era who, in opposition to Brown versus Board of Education, the Southern politicians were saying, you know, we, the people and the politicians, we have the right to interpret the Constitution. We don't have to obey the Supreme Court. And so liberals and everybody else who wanted Brown v. Board enforced, which was a massive fight for decades, said, no, you have to follow the court. Obey the court. The court is the authority on the Constitution. And liberals kind of got locked in that posture toward the Constitution and the court, where they were saying, uh, follow the court, the court's the authority on the Constitution, we out in politics should not be making arguments about the Constitution. And in fact, it's the conservatives who are doing that, and they're wrong to do it. They shouldn't be attacking the court so much with their kind of often not so arguments about the Constitution. Their, their arguments that like the Second Amendment sometimes protects an individual right or, you know, stuff like that, that was crazy, but of course now is law. So, uh, the conservatives continued the political outside critique of the court, and they made their constitutional arguments, and they got Americans kind of used to the idea that it's right-wingers who make independent arguments to the Constitution that are saying the court is wrong, the Constitution is really the authority. Um, the other thing that happened in the middle 20th century, by the way, is that a lot of the arguments that... Um, that liberals and progressives used to make before that period about the Constitution were about our political economy, which is like how our economic and political system is set up. They used to argue it's just not consistent with the democratic underpinnings of our Constitution if you have too much concentrated wealth. And so we need constitutionally, we're obligated to enact something like the income tax. Those arguments uh, go away in the mid 20th century because 
we stop talking about political economy, liberals start to say, oh, economics, that's really a kind of expert field. We should defer to the economists. And, uh, you know, they should be the ones in charge of things like economic policy, interest rates, taxes, all that stuff. And so you end up with this world being built, which we're still living in, where liberals are saying, follow the experts, follow the economists, follow the court. And conservatives are saying, no, we've got our constitutional arguments that we're going to make them in politics. Um, this is a completely unsustainable and terrible state of affairs. And it's time, like a big part of what this book is trying to do is show progressives and liberals, people on sort of the broad left, as you were describing in your question, that it's time to um, flip this around and rediscover the older way of arguing about the Constitution, which is through politics. And that's how Americans have done it for most of our history up until the kind of most recent part. So if we could, there, there's a lot to unpack, but one thing I want to get into is, I guess, the the formation of the early republic in the U.S. and the debates that were had and, and these figures like Jefferson and, and Hamilton. What were their views on issues like class and, and oligarchy? Yeah, so, you know, there's an interesting kind of and tricky combination of views. So, of course, the familiar uh, thing about the fights that those founders were having amongst themselves is that they were pretty divided about slavery. And the other familiar thing, uh, looking at it from where we sit today, is that they all um, were uh, relatively patrician people, you know, relatively elite people who were not on board with the most radical economic progressive things going on in that day, which is like John Brown and, you know, levelers and debt relief that states that some states were were enacting. And so from that, I, I feel like what you're saying is, I mean, these were relatively wealthy white men. Yeah, they yeah. weren't, wealthy, you know, they weren't necessarily women or people of color. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that. And there's also that they weren't, you know, the sort of far lefty economic people of their day either, even among white men, you know who some of whom were starting to argue for major redistribution. So that's on like, the, I'm just giving you, that's like not in the book. I mean, it's in the book, but it's not the thrust of the book. That's the kind of familiar picture from which you could definitely get a picture of the founding generation as pretty conservative when it came to economic matters. But this is not quite true. In fact, there's also a strain of thought deep in the uh, founding arguments that holds that actually we desperately need, if we're going to have a republic, we need a broad middle class, not, you know, a few super wealthy and a lot of serfs. That's not going to work. That's going to turn into, you know, Russia. That's not going to be um, a democratic republic in the long term. And so initially versions of this idea, you can see them even before the revolution in the ideas of people like especially Jefferson, who you mentioned, who argued uh, that, and you see it really clearly in his notes on the state of Virginia, that we needed to come up with ways, he said, well, we cannot come up with enough ways to divide property. And what did he mean by that? He was saying, you know, when someone dies, the British 
custom is, was primogenitor, which meant the whole estate would pass to the firstborn son, and then they would be the lord of the manor. And, you know, I don't know, the other guys are going to have to enter the priesthood, but or something, you know. But basically, you would keep having these large, landed, powerful estates. But Jefferson said that is the opposite of what we need in the United States. We need to divide it up, chop up the land so that more small landholders can be economically independent in a way that he argued was the foundation for democratic citizenship. And you really see these ideas get picked up by the Jacksonians, uh, the sort of Andrew Jackson's version of the Democratic Party. They argued that the Hamiltonian kind of impulse, which was concentrate economic power in basically New York and in the powerful kind of merchant capitals emerging in the New Republic, that that would be the best for economic growth. And Hamilton at all thought that growth would trickle down to everybody else, and that would actually be helpful to the masses. But Jefferson, and especially Jackson's views, were much more, we need to not concentrate power and wealth in that way. That looks like oligarchy. And instead, we need a broadly distributed middle class of landholders, because that's what productive wealth was, you know, in the 1790s, early 1800s was land, that we needed a broad class of, of middle class landers, because those people are going to be able to be um, citizens. And that's what we need is lots of citizens, not a few oligarchs. And so you kind of get from that idea that's the sort of lineal, you know, early, uh, like the, the descendant, the lineal descendants of that idea are people like the Reconstruction Republicans who said, in effect, Jackson had part of it right, but uh, what we actually need to build is a multiracial republic. And if we're going to have uh, black citizens, not just, you know, freed slaves who now are just as dependent as they were before on the white landlords, we need, said the radical Republicans, to break up, just like Jefferson, break up the landed estates, redistribute the land to the black uh, freed people, and thereby enable them to have the economic foundations of citizenship too. And, and also, by the way, we need to build black schools across the South, which was an idea Jefferson had had, too, that for him it was white schools, of course, but, you know, that we needed to build uh, schools so that people would have a kind of uh, robust set of economic opportunities in life and not be stuck in the position of serfs. I want to delve into that a little bit more because I think the whole story of, of what's been called the radical Republicans is very interesting to me. And I, I think people yeah. don't necessarily think about it because, you know, I think what Republican means today is very different um, than what it meant yeah. back then. So what, what what is the story behind the radical Republicans? Because I always found it uh, so interesting that you had these radical Republicans that were saying, you know, we need to do more uh, in regards to um, what we do after uh, the slaves are freed, after the Civil War. And, it, right. you know, I think a lot of their ideas, I tend to, be very sympathetic and agree with them. Yeah, well, they they were right. You know, I mean, uh, it turns out that if you provide people with political, this is also this is something FDR said too a lot. If you provide people with either just the political citizenship or just the economic citizenship, it's not going to work. In the end, thought both the radical Republicans and and FDR later, it's all tied together. You need economic. Uh, power and you need political rights because 
your enemies are going to use whichever one of those you don't have to undermine the other. And that's what the sad end of Reconstruction uh, showed. But the radical Republicans, so they had their roots in some of the ideas of the Whigs before the Civil War, and particularly when it came to, I think the place you see the kind of anti-oligarchy constitutional ideas, the clearest in that kind of Whig period prior to the Civil War, was in uh, kind of early Republicans like uh, guys who we really don't think about much today, but who are in the book quite a bit, like Galusha Grow, who thought, you know, when we expand westwards, this is a period of massive westward expansion in the United States. They were pushing out native tribes and trying to secure all this land for settlers. But there were different ways to do that. And it's one way that kind of the uh, the nascent railroad barons preferred was basically let's just sell off the new land to the highest bidders and we'll make a ton of money on all the new westward expansion. People like Lucian Gross said that is contrary to the entire foundations of the United States Constitution. What we need is to build a land of small land holdings that would support a middle class. And to do that, we need to give the land to anyone who's willing to farm it and settle it and just give it and basically uh, thereby create a democratic West. Um, those ideas are actually, you know, very similar when you look at them uh, to what the radical Republicans wanted to do shortly thereafter. And the ideology underneath it was was really the same. You know, this is my co-author, uh, Willie Forbath, had an article with the title Free Soil, Free Labor and Free Men. And that was really the ideology that free soil, meaning no slavery, free labor, meaning everybody being free to engage in labor and work and not be coerced by sort of overly powerful oligarchic uh, economic entities and uh, and free men. You know, it, it was it was uh, eventually it was an ideology that was inclusive across racial lines, although it would take more years for the sort of minority of people who also wanted it to be inclusive across gender lines. Uh, but it had this idea that we need, uh, if we're going to be a de democratic society, if we're going to be a democratic republic, we need to um, have uh, not just freedom in the sense of no more slavery, but freedom in the sense of genuine economic freedom and with with the kind of preconditions and foundations that let people really uh, thrive and be economic citizens. So that was the start of it. And, you know, as you alluded to in your question, it's been quite a run for the Republican Party to get from there to where it is today. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of good books about this. But, yeah, it's it's uh, where they started was um, in a really admirable place, I think. And, and I think if you wanted to find one place that really brings together the ideas in uh, our book in the clearest way, it's probably those radical Republicans. If you could, since you mentioned this idea of freedom, um, you know, I, I think people, a lot of people have this framing of freedom today, and I think it comes, you know, from the right, uh, sort of trying to monopolize th that term. There's this idea that, you know, freedom means, you know, oh, you, you just have to bootstrap and, you know, eventually you'll get to where you want to be. And I think it leaves out the ways in which when we concentrate wealth, into the hands of the few, I think it makes us all a lot less freer. Um, so maybe you could discuss that a little bit. 
Yeah, sure. And, you know, the thing is that the idea that um, so let me back up one second and just say something about the book, which is we're we're not making an argument in the book. We have found the only true constitutional arguments that there are. You know, I, I think there are, you know, good debates to be had today about exactly the kind of question that you just raised and the right wing version of freedom, which is basically freedom from government. Government's the only thing that can interfere with freedom. That view, you know, that has a pedigree, too. And in fact, in some of the Jacksonian rhetoric, you know, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I'll, I'll give you a kind of historical answer to your question. The Jacksonians thought we need a broad distribution of wealth, not a concentration of wealth in too few hands. That's what we need for a democracy. And how will we get it? Well, we're going to stop the government from taking actions, the federal government, from taking actions like granting monopolies to people and giving people special privileges that let them become oligarchs. And the Jacksonians th thought was, well, you know, if we just stop the federal government from mucking things up like that, then we'll have a broad distribution of wealth, a lot of middle class people, and the republic will function. So that really seemed plausible to white men in the 18. 20s, 1830s, whatever. By the end of the 19th century, it was clear that was like definitely not right. You had these massive corporations, you had the rise of, you know, the massive kind of steel and railroad and other like the early oil monopoly was coming. You had standard oil, you had you had these massive new powerful economic actors. And what started to become obvious to a lot of the people who, you know, even in their youth had had Jacksonian views, it was, okay, actually, we're going to have to pick. Either we can say, you know, restrain the federal government and just let these new oligarchs, you know, run wild. Or we can say, no, we actually meant it when we said we needed a broad distribution of wealth and a broad middle class. And if we're going to have that, then we're going to need to enact things like antitrust law to break up these large new powerful actors because they have too much control over people's money and over people's jobs, over people's lives. I mean, there was a one company basically controlled the state legislature of Montana uh, in a kind of incident that I describe in the book that led to led Montana to adopt a lot of populist and progressive uh, new democratic constitutional uh, forms like the initiative and referendum. So but anyway, this this company, when it didn't get what it wanted from the state legislature, it just shut down operations temporarily. It was like a little before winter, threw about 10% of the state out of work. And, you know, people were going to starve and not be able to heat their homes. And this was a kind of power over politics that is just too much. And it's just it, the libertarian frame that says, oh, everybody's free as long as the government isn't doing anything. You know, it, it was sort of like illustratively clear to everybody in that situation, except for the apologists for the company, that uh, that this was not right and that freedom could be impinged by government, but also by private actors that have too much power. I, I want to get more into the book itself, but I, I just want to ask you, you're a professor of law and, you know, you've probably taught a number of students over the years with differing political views. I have a lot of listeners from all over the political spectrum. I lean yeah. much more towards the left, but I, I do have a few uh, listeners that I would say are more libertarian leaning. And I don't always yeah. think that, you know, they're just bad faith actors. I think a lot of libertarians believe that 
you know, um, you know, freedom from government is 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 a good. And I, I can understand in some ways why they feel that way. You know, I, I was very concerned with civil liberties and um, the government during the Bush years when I was growing up. I felt like there was, you know, uh, attacks on civil liberties going on uh, during that time period. So I understand the freedom from government argument. But what what are the sort of things you would say to maybe uh, if you've had libertarian students or, or libertarian friends, what, what do you sort of say to them to say, hey, you may have a point here, but what about this? Um, how, how do you oh, make sure. an argument to libertarians? Well, look, so first of all, I mean, when you talk about my students, I too have students from all over the political spectrum. And I don't, uh, you know, want to evangelize my own particular political views to them. That's not my job. Uh, I want them to just learn as much as they can about the law and history and evidence. And actually, there's a fair amount of history in this book. Um, and I think uh, I've I've gotten some interesting reactions to it from from uh, from libertarian commentators and students. But but I guess to get to your real point, which is like, what do you say today? Uh, what are the arguments that? Uh, and I guess I think the the simplest and strongest arguments have to do with. Um, thinking about what freedom really looks like in terms of uh, the ability to do what we want without people exercising arbitrary power over us. And the exercise of arbitrary power, you know, that's really powerful, sometimes it's government, sometimes it's not. And I think libertarians, well, I don't know, I, I, at least right-leaning people, put it that way, today, who look at what you know tech platforms are doing that they don't like uh, and things like that, they are really, um, I think, in a position to appreciate the point that sometimes there are actors that are not the government, but that have quite a lot of power and that we have to decide collectively as a society, because this is what lawmaking is, uh, whether and to what extent we want to regulate any of that. And sometimes, you know, regulation comes with its own problems and costs and libertarians are very focused on those. And sometimes they're right, you know, uh, but I do think that um, if you think about what America would look like without say uh, antitrust law, um, well, one thing to say is that's pretty bleak, but another thing to say is we're looking a little bit like that today because antitrust law has been weakened so much. And so you only have a few major players in so many industries. Libertarians come in various flavors, but the kind of libertarian who I think ought to be the most sympathetic to these kind of critiques and to the anti-oligarchy argument is the kind of libertarian who wants a real unfettered marketplace with lots of competition and not a lot of massive walls put up around powerful companies making entry impossible for new competitors and sort of just crushing their competitors left and right. If you really want competition, the paradox is you need government because it's government that can come in and restrain, you know, Amazon from stomping on the producers in lots of different industries who make stuff and by just, you know, copying their products and driving them out of business and doing stuff that some of it is and some of it should be um, violations of law that we use government power to stop. And so I think, um, you know, there, there's various different kinds of libertarians. There are the, the more political libertarians who just 
are focused on wanting government out. But the ones who actually care about economic competition, I think, have a lot to learn from uh, some of the kinds of arguments I have in the book and that and that I would make about what is really needed to make economic competition possible. If you could, could you talk a little bit about, there's a tradition uh, you and your co-author refer to in the book as the democracy, democracy of opportunity tradition. What do we mean by that democracy of opportunity tradition? Yeah, so, so uh, this phrase comes from FDR, but Willie and I are using it in the book to describe the whole arc of the tradition I kind of was talking to you about earlier in the context of Reconstruction Radical Republicans, which is the idea that at the bottom of the Constitution, uh, there are some principles about the kind of political economy we need. And what we need, what we mean by that is, um, and these arguments were around at the founding, they were certainly around among the Jacksonians and among the uh, Reconstruction Republicans, but also the populists, the progressives, these arguments are you need to have restraints on oligarchy. You can't have too much concentrated economic and political power. So that's one principle, restraints on oligarchy. Second, you need a broad and open middle class. Um, and then third, which this third idea was only sometimes part of the, of the argument, um, you need this to be inclusive in terms of, at least in terms of race. Uh, so that you have a broad open middle class that's a multiracial, it's a foundation for, for a multiracial democracy. This idea, um, the reason we call it a democracy of opportunity is because um, it captures the idea that we don't just want people to have opportunities, economic opportunities, because that way they can earn a good living and be, you know, hopefully happy people who have enough uh, material possessions like that's very nice and you know my previous book was a lot about equal opportunity um and explored some of the some of the arguments that that all sides make about about that topic but i guess part of what we're doing in this book is showing that especially in the u.s context and in the context of u.s constitutional and political argument the biggest reason to care about the distribution of opportunities is because it shapes democracy it democratically distributing the opportunities which means broadly among the people instead of having everything concentrated in a few hands or instead of having all the opportunities be you know you have to be the you know the the son of the previous generation of of people who did well basically to do well and everybody else is screwed you know like the the way that we um set up our economic opportunities is linked with the way that we uh, build a democratic society in the more usual political sense. So that's why we thought that phrase of FDRs was so evocative. And he meant it like that. He, he was trying to say that we need to overthrow what he called the economic royalists. Um, and he used that term, you know, really advisedly, because what he meant was um, these powerful business guys who were against the New Deal and who were against everything that FDR stood for, they were like, he he wanted to suggest, the um, the British crown. You know, they were like the, um, the aristocrats of their day. Uh, and what we need instead of aristocracy is democracy. So that's what FDR meant by the phrase. And that's kind of where we picked it up. I want to get more into FDR, but 
it sounds like one of the biggest problems with concentrating wealth into so few hands is I, I know people will say wealth will trickle down, but it seems like what we often get is a situation where uh, the wealthy almost um, there's like a glass ceiling that, you know, people below the wealthy can't necessarily break through that and, and rise up. Um, do, right. do you think that's an issue that prevents people from opportunity? Sure. Yeah. Look, I mean, there's different, there's different ways the structure is set up. There's inequality kind of at the top, at the middle and the bottom. So, you know, if you're thinking about the ceiling, you're thinking about inequality at the top. It's like, how do the really rich get where they are? And there's been a lot of interesting work on this topic, you know, um, sort of uh, conservatives will point to the current Forbes, you know, wealthiest people list and say, well, you know, most of the people on there didn't seem to inherit this wealth. They they must have, you know, they like either were founding, you know, big companies or uh, they they got wealthy somehow themselves. So that that's looking good. But, you know, there have been previous times in American history where uh, the list, if there had been a list, looked like that too and then you know what happens they pass down the wealth um and the list of the very top wealthy people a few decades later looks like a lot of heirs um and that is definitely not that's that's the inequality at the very top okay uh and that's a, a real problem if you want to uh, build a society in which anybody can rise as far as their talents take them if a lot of the um, you know, smart people of the society are basically having jobs serving uh, inherited wealth. This is this is not going to work. Then there's inequality in the middle. There's inequality in, uh, you know, like there's a there are a lot of stakes in questions about um, who is able to start a business, who's able to actually compete in this economy. Do you have to have powerful friends? And, you know, uh, a lot of money from your parents to start anything uh, in this economy. I think there's a lot of uh, interesting research about the decline in entrepreneurialism in this country uh, that is related to the concentrated wealth. And there's inequality kind of at the bottom, too. You know, when you have uh, people who don't pursue higher education because it means taking on too much debt or they did start to pursue it and then dropped out and now they have the debt and not the degree. You know, we have a, a major engine of inequality there. Um, and I think the the political and even the constitutional stakes of something like the current controversy about student debt relief um, are really uh, worth paying attention to and are not how it's going to be framed in, you know, litigation in court, but it is how we should think about it in in politics. I mean, the question is, do we want uh, like the Republicans and even Thomas Jefferson thought that you needed uh, to have free education so that it would be accessible to people who didn't have means? Uh, and today, when we need higher ed in the same way that, you know, 100 years ago, we needed high school, uh, you know, the, the political and economic stakes of, of those kinds of questions are enormous. I want to go back real quickly to um, the sort of aristocracy that was for slavery and, and the abolitionists that went against them. Yeah. I mean, is it right to say that the, the abolitionists were attacking slavery, not not just because it was a gross violation 
uh, of the rights of those that were enslaved, the natural rights. But also uh, at the same time, it was um, slavery was an institution that, that sort of raised up an aristocracy that lorded over, you know, poor whites as well as everyone else. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, you really see it both in what the Republican Party was founded to, to do, uh, which was to upend that aristocracy, uh, at least as the Republican Party evolved and through the Civil War found its purpose. The radical Republicans were firmly of this view and other Republicans varying degrees. Um, you know, they wanted to change the whole Southern economic system to, to swap out its current oligarchic, aristocratic type of political economy for something more democratic. And what that would mean is literally confiscating the land of the plantations and distributing it to the formerly enslaved people. 40 acres and a mule, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a reason that 40 acres and a mule, you know, you need the mule because you also need the capital to work the land. You know, the mule, I think, is symbolically important. But anyway, you need the land and the capital to work it. And uh, and that was not going to be there was not enough abandoned land to do it. You know, it, it, it in the end, not enough of this was done. A little of it was done. Um, but, you know, it's very hard to get a Southern political system that's going to cooperate with the breaking up of the empires of its most powerful aristocrats. That's what was needed, though. And the radical Republicans- And these were aristocrats that had, you know, they used their their economic power to basically have disproportionate political clout, you know, nationwide. Yeah. Very disproportionate. And, you know, uh, you saw that in in the ensuing decades and centuries, you know? I mean, I think the- um, the story of how Reconstruction collapsed um, and the kind of political system of the first half of the 20th century in the South is very illustrative because basically you had all these kind of complicated and interesting political machinations by the elite white Southern aristocrats who were the heirs, often literally the heirs of the uh, slaveholding elite to make sure that whatever happened, there could never be a political alliance between poor white people and poor black people in the South. And so to that end, they used new means of disenfranchising people like literacy tests that were aimed not just at making sure that black people who it had been illegal to teach literacy to under slavery, uh, make sure they wouldn't vote, but it would make sure that poor white guys wouldn't vote either. Uh, and that was the point. And there were further, um, you know, I mean, this is getting a little bit deep in the weeds, but you see the ramifications of some of the rules they put in to make sure there wouldn't be successful uh, uh, fusion politics. Even today, the reason we're having a runoff. Well, in what Georgia, do you mean by fusion politics? Just fusion I know you're politics. going in the weeds, but yeah, yeah. So so this is like the idea of specifically what I'm talking about is the fusion of a kind of populist white and black um, politics where you would have a uh, challenge to the oligarchic rich interests of the South. And one of the many, there's so many different, this is, I mean, I have a, I teach election law. I'm interested in this stuff. Some of it's in the book, most of it's not, but it's just, I'm thinking about it because tomorrow we're having a runoff in this election in Georgia. 
And like, that's because they have a rule in Georgia, which most states do not have that, you know, you can't win unless you get 50% of the vote. So, okay, like whatever, that's a rule, you know, plurality, majority, like there's different ways to do it. Why do they have that rule though? And the reason is they wanted to prevent a black candidate from being able to ever sort of sneak in in Georgia with a few crossover poor white votes. They thought, let's make sure that if you have a kind of fractured field and nobody's at 50%, there's going to be a runoff. And in the runoff, there's never going to be more than one black candidate. And so if it's a black candidate, I mean, they couldn't have imagined what they've got tomorrow. <laughs> but if it's a black candidate against a white candidate, thought the racist aristocrats who wrote this recount law, I mean, excuse me, not recount, who wrote this um, runoff law, then in the runoff, we can make it a racial thing and make the get all the white voters to vote against the black candidate. In other words, we can sort of balkanize them against each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and that was a kind of explicit aim of a lot of, of uh, Southern politics. But anyway, I, I, all that I want to say in respect to the the politics of the radical Republicans that you bring up at the beginning of the question is they saw all that coming. They saw that, you know, it was not going to be easy, but what you need to do is completely upend the Southern economic system if you wanted to get rid of the slave oligarchy or aristocracy that was lording it over uh, too much political and economic power, too much land and too much uh, too many people in the South. So if you could, could you talk a little bit about the Gilded Age? Because I, I think that's another term that we sometimes hear in, in popular culture, but for people that are, you know, um, that hear the term, but don't necessarily understand entirely what it means, maybe you could talk about that. And the, the, I guess the reaction against uh, the Gilded Age and the inequality of that period. Yeah, sure. I mean, as I was sort of alluding to much earlier, the Gilded Age is kind of the late 19th and early 20th century. And what really made it different than what came before was because of like easier trade and movement and because of some of the rise of some big industries, like especially the railroads and steel and oil and things like that, you started to see national corporations, uh, not just local, but national. And they were really powerful. They started to have, you know, this was the, the rise of because I'm a lawyer, I think about, you know, the, the lawyers who serve those corporations. You started to have a national corporate bar and you started to have lawyers who would go become judges on the Supreme Court who were serving the interests of these super powerful monopolies. And the problem was, you know, this was consigning lots and lots of people who were flocking to the cities uh, to work in these new industrial jobs to really bad lives with terrible working conditions and not enough pay. And uh, they really were a emerging American underclass in a way that the U.S. had not seen before. And, you know, this was not just happening in the U.S. This was also happening in Europe. And you started to have revolutionary ideas uh, in a lot of countries in Western Europe and the U.S. Uh, kind of about how this seems wrong and there should be better wages and there should be redistribution of wealth to the proletariat, a term that's, you know, European term, not an American term. And so it's in the middle of, of these struggles as you're starting to see 
the emergence of uh, a labor movement in America, which was kind of a central uh, movement fighting against this uh, kind of centralization of economic and political power of the Gilded Age, the labor movement immediately runs into a buzzsaw of uh court injunctions, court rulings that said, no, you can't organize. In fact, you're legally obligated to go to work. Uh, we're going to throw you in jail if you you know, walk off the job and strike, uh, or if you even tell others that they should, or if you even do a sympathy strike, you know, if there's some word someone else. And so courts were making all these constitutional arguments. And so in response, the populace and then later the progressives this is kind of the late 19th and then into the early 20th century, started to make constitutional arguments too. And that's what we uh, get into a lot in the book. They started to make constitutional arguments about how, wait a minute, actually the, the courts shouldn't be issuing labor injunctions. It's not that corporations have a right to their workers' labor. Actually, the rights are on our side. We have a right to strike. And the First Amendment protects us. And the 13th Amendment, which prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude, protects us from working if we want to strike. That's, you know, involuntary servitude to order us to stay at work when we uh, want to walk out. And, you know, all of those kind of arguments start to foment a kind of constitutional counter argument to what the courts were saying. And... You know, they never really, these populist and progressive arguments never really win in court exactly. Um, but what they do is catalyze a kind of politics that uh, turns into a politics against the court. Sometimes they succeeded in amending the Constitution. This is where we eventually got the income tax through a constitutional amendment. The Supreme Court had struck it down. But the progressives got it put in. Populists had called for it for years. It's how we got the direct, ele direct election of senators um, in the Constitution. It's how in Western states we got things like the initiative and referendum and the recall, all of which were tools to kind of go against this Gilded Age elite uh, oligarchy that was having too much power in our politics. And so, you know, this was 100 years ago, but there's a lot of um, economists and historians today who talk about where we are now as a second Gilded Age. And the reason that they do that is uh, because although it looks a little different, um, the economic measures of inequality, uh, which were really high in the Gilded Age and then came way down through World War One and World War Two and the New Deal, and even the 60s and 70s, and then started coming back up and now are back up to the levels that they were 100 years ago during the Gilded Age. And so that's the reason that a lot of people, I mean, I don't have a particular stake in this, but I think it's a fair description to say that where we are now is a kind of second Gilded Age. So it sounds like you're, you're saying too that maybe for too long we've thought that, you know, constitutional claims almost just mean, you know, oh, that that's just judicial vetoes, uh, you know, which I think you, you and um, uh, William referred to as like, you know, basically conversation stoppers in the book. You're yeah. saying there's a completely different uh, tradition. And then we can even look back at the way the framers uh, talk about we the people, you know, and how we as the people need to carry the burden of defending constitutional democracy. So you're essentially saying that there's uh, sort of another way to understand the Constitution, and that is where the anti-oligarchy Constitution comes in. 
Yes, you're right. And it's important. It's this is it comes back to the question you asked near the start about liberals and our views and how we stop making constitutional arguments in politics. Most of our history, most Americans have agreed that the place for constitutional arguments is politics and is among all of us, all the people all the time. You know, we get to make constitutional arguments because uh, the Constitution doesn't, you know, defend itself. And uh, we have to argue for how things should apply today to a different situation than they were before. Um, the idea that it's all courts is very new. And even though it's been the way that liberals have thought about the courts for our whole lifetimes, I think we can take some inspiration from two things. First, the conservatives have never accepted that at all and have continued to make arguments outside the courts in politics, uh, including arguments for why the court is wrong. And they've argued, you know, for for 40 years that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. And now they've succeeded with that. Uh, there's that's one model that should should give us some hope for the fact that actually you can argue in politics about the constitution and eventually succeed. But I think the bigger uh, thing that should give us hope is just that for most of our history, progressives too made claims on the constitution. This was not some like legal document. I mean, FDR, uh, just to, to kind of come to him here at the end, you know, uh, had a, a line that the constitution is uh, a layman's document, not a lawyer's contract. And I think that captures something really important about it, which is, you know, as much as I, you know, I train lawyers, I am a lawyer, whatever, I like lawyers, but the Constitution is not supposed to be some sort of elite code language thing that you have to be a lawyer to have any coherent opinions about. You know, it's never been that. Uh, lawyers have become more specialized and sophisticated in the last few decades, and that has helped kind of fuel this perception that a constitutional argument, it has to have all of these like legal Latin phrases and stuff around it for it to make sense. But I think that really is obfuscating the core thing, which is that the Constitution is a document by which the people choose to govern ourselves. And so we all have to be able to make arguments and claims on it. And that's what for most of American history, all sides agreed on and did. And so uh, in our book, we're arguing just that like it's time for liberals and progressives to get back to that and do the thing that conservatives are still doing now and that all sides usually have done. Uh, but it does feel weird. You know, it does feel unfamiliar to some readers and listeners uh, probably to, to hear that constitutional arguments aren't just for um, the courts. But I think we're going to have to get there if we want to be able to do the things conservatives have done for the last, you know, 70 years, which is critique the court. Um, you know, to be able to say the court is wrong when it's imposing on us all of these constitutional ideas that it is making up and that we don't want, um, you know, you have to be able to stand on the authority of saying that we too have, you know, the same kind of right that the court does to argue for our interpretations. Um, and so I'm hoping people will get back to that. I just had one or two more questions. Um, it was interesting. She mentioned the term populist before. And I think I think a lot of times when we hear that term now, uh, 
it carries a very negative connotation. Yeah. So is there anything we can learn from that term populism today and the history of populism and sure. maybe the ways in which uh, there's some good as well as bad or yeah, maybe the ways look, in which it's been hijacked? Yeah, look, I mean, it's very interesting. You're, you're hearing me in the previous answer, you're hearing me sort of invoke the, uh, I mean, the populace of the late 19th century were fundamentally uh, progressive in their orientation about economic matters. It was the populace who argued that we should have uh, something like an income tax and that the people should be able to directly vote on things and not just leave everything to a few elite uh, representatives. And, you know, um, populism certainly has its uh, downsides. Appealing to the people is uh, sometimes you get kind of demagoguery and lowest common denominator forms of of politics. Um, but there's no real alternative to democracy that's any better than democracy. And mm. to me, uh, the interesting thing about popular about the kind of the the populist impulse and the way that today some kinds of right wing populism have uh, channeled it is that populism is always in some way uh, revolt against some set of what the populace perceive as elites who have too much power. And today, that's exactly what we need. We need a revolt of the American people against some elites who have too much power. Now, the interesting thing about right-wing populism is it's got a unique kind of novel view about which elites. The right-wing populists want you to say, want, want Americans to take the view that what matters in our country is not the incredible concentrations of Gilded Age style wealth and the political power that the rich have in Congress to enact, you know, laws that favor them even further. That's not, you know, don't look, don't look at that. Instead, you know, look at Hollywood and maybe like us at universities or, you know, sort of cultural power of of like, you know, movie stars and rock stars. And like somehow that's where the elite are against which right wing populism wants us to revolt. Um, that's a very, I think, uh, messed up view of where political power actually is. And in particular, it's a way of taking our eye off the ball of political economy itself and of like who has the money and who the laws are favoring uh, instead sort of channeling everything into this weird kind of cultural grievance loop. Um, but, you know, I do think that you can take from the right wing populace a one at least one important thing which is that there are a lot of Americans who are pretty pissed off with the current state of things and who would like to rebel against some elites. And so partly- I, I was going to say, it's it's you been know, true at various times, right? Yeah, like yeah. I, I may find a character like uh, Ewing Long, you know, the Kingfish, uh, to, to not be someone I would agree with on a lot of yeah, issues. Yeah. But, you know, e even he spoke to a real anger that a lot of people had. Uh, yeah, no, and, and you know, like- yeah a chicken in every pot. I mean, Huey Long had some economically progressive type populist ideas, also some sort of fascist ideas. He had a lot of problems, but, uh, you know, I think 
we need to, uh, we on the left need to take seriously that there is this strong populist thread in current, uh, in our current politics, which makes sense because in part of the massive inequalities that we have. And um, I think we should try to honor that. And there's a way that, you know, the kind of Bernie Sanders version of left politics did really um, kind of try to do justice to that. And uh, I think that's an important political uh, kind of message and strain in, in progressive politics, too. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know we're like uh, running up against the hour, but I hope I, I hope you have time to answer this. Um, you, you have a whole chapter devoted to the great society and what you call the great forgetting. Uh, uh -huh. So what exactly is the great forgetting? Yeah, well, so I think we've set this up pretty well at this point. So so the, in this conversation, because it's, it's what I was talking about earlier, the, the um, remarkable thing that happens after FDR stares down the court with this court packing plan and the court backs off. So FDR wins and we get social security and we get uh, labor law. We get the things that the FDR new dealers wanted to put in place that the court had been striking down that the court starts to uphold them. And then this weird thing happens. The arguments about constitutional political economy that had animated that whole campaign, the left stops making them. Instead, as we were discussing before, the, the left starts to think about economic matters in terms of economic expertise and constitutional arguments instead of saying we have a constitutional duty to enact social security to protect our middle class and to protect seniors from economic devastation instead of saying that was a constitutional argument they start to say well you know the constitution just says we have the power to enact these things it says nothing more than that and uh, we're going to say that on constitutional matters, we're just going to defer to the Supreme Court. So there's this kind of forgetting on a couple of levels of the constitutional arguments, of the lefty economic arguments that used to be made in the 30s. Some of that we talk about in the book, some of that is sort of a the, the mid 20th century economic conversation on the left gets kind of truncated by a lot of anti-communist purging of people who either were communists or their ideas were just sufficiently lefty that other people worried they were too close to being communists. And it's the Cold War. You can't argue for the redistribution of wealth like that. So anyway, there's this whole process of, of a change that we label a forgetting where progressives and liberals in the mid 20th century stopped making these arguments that they used to make. And this is a disaster in the long run because we need those arguments, you know, in the um, in the 1970s and 80s and on even to the present. We need to be able to argue uh, for economic fairness and redistribution. We need to be able to argue in a serious constitutional way for things like campaign finance law or Obamacare. You know, without the kind of constitutional arguments that we used to make, we're stuck with really narrow arguments for these things. Like Obamacare is okay because, I don't know, Commerce Clause precedent and it's a tax. Or, you know, campaign finance law should be upheld because um, it's a permissible thing the government could have an interest in. Like, this is crazy. The, the, the good arguments for these things, the old arguments that have been forgotten and that Willie Forbath and I think, you know, it's time to recover are arguments 
that it's not just like permissible or okay to have something like campaign finance regulation. This is something that's obligated, that the Congress needs to do if we want to preserve our republic. And those constitutional arguments that have been forgotten, I think, uh, are ones that, you know, it's part of the project of, of writing a book like this is we want to just like get them out there and have people thinking about these arguments and talking about them. Because uh, if our republic is going to make it, you know, another 250 years, I think we're going to definitely need to uh, get these ideas back into circulation. I was just going to add to that. I think that's very true. Um, and it's just interesting to me. I think a lot of people, for, for as much as a lot of people still talk about FDR as, as one of the greatest presidents, I think we often forget some of the arguments he made, like um, with regards to the four freedoms, um, especially, you know, the freedom from want, you know, where, where he's essentially expressing this idea, you know, you, you shouldn't have to be in a situation where you're worried about being able to put food on the table for your kids. I mean, that's a pretty just, um, you know, it's, it's an amazingly succinct argument, right? Yeah. Uh, but we've forgotten uh, those type of arguments for that kind of freedom. And I think we yeah. do see yeah. a return to that. Yeah, no, it's true. Those don't sound like freedom anymore because like, what are you going to go into court and say, you know, I need to feed my family, you know, lawsuit? Like, like no, that's not how it works, you know? And so if, if that's the only kind of constitutional argument you can make, then yeah, the, the, um, FDR's sort of entire what he called the second bill of rights kind of drops out and we don't even know we don't even understand what to um, what to do with it you know in closing what's your hope uh for the future do you think uh progressives and liberals are reclaiming uh sort of constitutional grounds and claims uh, where do you th see things headed in the future right yeah it's a good question i mean uh i'm a sort of optimistic person in general <laughs> Uh, and you know, there's we a lot need of, more of that these days. We if need you're more a optimism. lawyer, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're a lawyer on the sort of left half of the spectrum anywhere, or really anywhere in the middle, either, there's a lot of things to be pessimistic about coming from the Supreme court these days, but in a way they actually give me some hope because this court is so far to the right and is so brazen in its sort of overturning precedents and all that kind of stuff that I think it's creating a conversation that was overdue, but that wasn't happening on the left and even in the middle until now. So, you know, I thought, well, surely Citizens United, that was such an outrage. People would really like know the name of that case and get agitated about it. And, you know, a few people did. Same with Shelby County, which gutted the Voting Rights Act. I thought, okay, surely this is big enough that we can start to have a politics of Let's talk about why the Supreme Court is too right wing and, you know, is wrong. But it didn't really take. But Dobbs was was different. You know, people really understood what was going on there, that the Supreme Court, purely because of the ideologies of the justices, had flipped on one of the most important uh, constitutional issues for most people. And so um, I think there's room now. What gives me hope is that I hear more genuine talk now, not just among like a few academics or something, but among kind of regular politicians and people on the left half of the spectrum about reforming the court and about having a politics of fighting against the court. And, you know, that's just the very first step. Uh, and that will take a long time to succeed. But, um, but at least it's kind of 
taking that first step. Uh, and so I have no doubt that this Supreme Court is going to give plenty of additional reasons <laughs> for liberals to engage in that kind of politics. And I think that that weirdly um, is what makes me uh, hopeful. Well, Joseph Fishkin, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views, and I hope everyone will check out the anti-oligarchy constitution. I'm holding it right in my hands here. Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, and they can get that at their favorite booksellers, and I would suggest everyone support their favorite independent bookstores. Uh, thank you again, Joseph Fishkin. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joseph E. Fishkin, and that you'll check out the book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.